Ephesians 6, 18 through 24. If you're here today for the first time, or maybe you've just not been in a while, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. Today we'll see us complete that work. And in two weeks, um, if you just want to make up for the last several months that you've missed, I'm going to preach a sermon just on this book uh, from beginning to end, trying to argue what the central thesis of the book of Ephesians is. And so we'll call that Catch-Up Sunday. Okay? We just named it. That's what it's going to be, Catch-Up Sunday on the 23rd. If it's not the 23rd, then, then you can do the math. Let me read 6, 18 through 24, then we'll walk through. Paul writes, and he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then Paul transitions in 21 through 24 to kind of final greetings. He says, so that you also may know how, how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers. In love with faith from God and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What you find in, in 21 through 24 are just kind of some closing statements. He's wrapping up the letters, so we're not going to spend very much time in that. We're going to spend the lion's share of our time in 18, 19, and 20. And so if at some point you feel, oh, Lord, how long can he talk about one verse? Know that when we get to 21 through 24, we will not have that same weight, okay? You can make it. This is why I encourage you to bring snacks to the service. Somebody just busted out a Snickers bar and said, thank the Lord. All right, what we find here is a little bit interesting. Uh, he opens up verse 18, and, and it's almost in the middle of a thought. And, and so you're probably wondering, why did he break it like this? How is this working out? Well, when you look at, at, the, at the text in the Greek New Testament, what they do is a lot of the editors of the Greek New Testament, they put a period, they put a hard stop after verse 17. Now, the, the writers, translators of the ESV, they looked at it, and they thought in some way that verses 18, verse 18 was, was attached to that which came before, okay? Grammar lesson over. Grammar lesson over. But what we see in verse 18 is that Paul has moved away from the military image that he was conjuring before. Your last week, as we got together and we're in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, Paul is building this imagery. He says, stand. Uh, take up the armor, put on the armor, stand firm, receive or take up the helmet. And so the last two things he told us were to take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But immediately before that, immediately prior to that, the overarching strong verb or idea that we saw in there was the idea of we need to stand, therefore. We need to stand. As believers, we recognize... And, and maybe some of you haven't, your head has been stuck in the sand, but like culture is moving in a different way from the church. Do you see that? If you don't see that, you've not been watching the news, reading the papers, or having any notable conversations with anybody at the grocery aisle, but, and so this is news for you. Culture is moving in opposition to the word of God. 
And it really it has been since the first century A.D. Christianity has never been a construction of the culture. It's always been counter-cultural. There are times when culture comes more in line with Christianity, but as our time is now, we see culture moving in opposite direction of Christianity. And so that's why Paul called on them to put on these various armaments. He called them to put on all these things, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, to take up the sword of the Spirit, to take up the Word of God, to do battle with those inimical forces, to do battle with the enemy. Not the people we disagree with, but the supernatural influences affecting them in their lives. That's important. And so he comes through this, and I I got the question last week that somebody said, well, what about prayer? You notice that Paul moved through that whole set of imagery, and he left off the element of prayer. But we recognize our ability to stand firm in the midst of this is decidedly tied to the degree to which we pray. Now, prayer is one of these things that, that, that really kind of begins our Christian walk. Like at some point, you and God had this conversation where you said, I am a lowly sinner. Would you come in? Would you save me? I'd God, I'd like to put my faith, I'd like to put my trust in you. Would you come in and become Lord of my life? And so you had this, this prayer discussion. And for some of you, this isn't something you had to be taught. Just as you talked to your parents, so you learned of God, and so you turned and spoke to him. And so you had this conversation on your own. It wasn't something someone coached you, led you through. You're having this deep conversation with God. But it's somewhere along the line of progression and in, in, in maturity and just growing older, we lose this childlike understanding of what it means to come before God, to come before Abba, and just to talk to him, to converse with him, to pour out our wants, to pour out our desires, to pour out our fears. And we almost view it as this transactional thing. Where it's time to eat, we're hungry, and we say, God, cover this mess so I don't cause a mess. Cover this mess, I don't cause a mess. Cover this, bless this food, lest I get indigestion. And for a lot of us, that's the way that we pray. And so our prayers center around kind of of things. And so they are in the morning over breakfast. They are at lunch if we remember. They are at dinner if we do dinner with a family or in front of a television. We mute it, we pray, we eat. You go to bed, and some of you pray as you drift off. But largely, largely, if I were to call for you to embarrass yourselves and and to have a show of hands and say, which of you demonstrate this as being your prayer life, hands would shoot up, sheepishly maybe. You'd hold your wife's hand up, she'd hold your hand up, and you'd be doing this. It's not me, it's you. But largely, this is kind of where our prayer lives are. And so it's little wonder It's little wonder we've lost this close fellowship with God because we have abandoned what it is to commune with God. And so it's little wonder when it comes to big decisions and we're really wrangling with how to do the right thing and and how to choose right from wrong and how to follow these things. And we stare at our Bibles blankly thinking, I really wish this thing worked by process of osmosis. I really wish I could lay my head on it at night and then wake up in the morning fully alerted, fully aware, fully cognizant of all the things that it says in it. But we don't pray. Or we make it to some period of incredible turmoil. Your wife is sick, your husband is sick, your children are on their deathbed. You've got some incredible thing you've accidentally done and now you find yourself about to suffer the consequences. And so in the middle of that moment, what do you do? I'm stuck. I could do nothing else. I guess by now I should pray. Prayer, prayer is not this grand slam in the bottom of the night. 
that causes you to win the game. Prayer is what prepares you for life. Prayer is what sustains you through life. And prayer is what carries you to the end. For some reason, we've kind of abandoned that. We've lost prayer as, as fellowship and communing with God, meditating on his word and asking him to impart truth to us. And we've seen it as this lifeline when we're lost in a drift and we want somebody to throw it out or we want to cast it back and have him reel us in. Certainly, certainly God moves and answers and, and, and desires to commune with his people in their darkest hour. But if this is all that prayer has become for us, then we've lost it. So Paul, at the end of his letter, he's talked about the, the integral nature of the family. He's talked about how this works out. He says you need to be spirit-filled to have a, have a happy family. Now here at the end of his letter, after telling them what armor to put on, he calls to them and he says they are to pray. Have to be a praying people. Have to be a praying people. Let's walk through this. He says, pray at all times in the Spirit. He calls us and he says, and effectively you find this over in Thessalonians 5.17, pray at all times without ceasing. But here he's coming at it from a slightly different bend. He says, pray at all times. He's looking at it and he uses this word in the Greek, kairos. And he's really pointing at more of not the incessant nature of praying, but praying in any and every situation. Uh, for a people that are so given to praying in dire situations alone and celebrating with everybody around us, this seems kind of contrary to our practice, at least. So many of us know this in our heads, but we're not doing this. We're not engaged in this practice. So whenever something amazing and awesome happens to you, you don't drop on your knees and say, praise God, thank you for letting me get this job. Praise God, thank you for, for all this working out, for my husband coming back, for my wife coming back, for my children uh, growing in salvation for us getting this home, praise God. But instead we call everybody, or we take to Twitter, we take to Facebook, you snap a picture of yourself on Instagram, and then you want those little hearts that everybody does. I can't figure that out. For the life of me, it's so confusing. But he says, pray at all times. Pray in every occasion. As Christians, we should be such that our lives are continually spent in the exercise of prayer. But not praying just for whatever we would set ourselves on. He links it. He says praying in the spirit. This isn't some type of, of super spiritual deal where your eyes roll back in your head and you just blah, 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 blah. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying praying in accordance with the way God's spirit is leading you to pray. Effectively, you could say praying under the strength of the spirit. This is effectively what Paul is talking about. Paul says there are moments and times in Romans 8 starting at verse 26, that you don't know what to pray for. You get into situations, you say, God, I don't know how to pray for this. Or maybe just in the quietness of your heart, you're having your quiet time in the morning, you've done a reading, nothing of significance is going on in your life, and you lay it before him, and you say, how would you have me pray? How would you have me grow? Who would you have me pray for? And we recognize that in that moment, what we are doing is putting ourselves, placing ourselves in submission to the movement of the Spirit. We're not coming in there with a set list of I wants and I need to haves. We're coming in and saying, who would you have me be? How would you have me grow? It's decidedly different, and it transforms our prayer lives. Look what he says, that this prayer in the Spirit needs to be with all prayer and supplication. Well, this appears to us to be somewhat redundant, does it not? 
Like you need to be strengthened with strength. You need to love people with love. When you say these types of things, it sounds redundant. But what is Paul getting at? He's looking at two aspects of what it means to pray. Everybody understand this? And so he says you need to pray at all times in the Spirit with prayer. Everybody say with prayer. And with supplication. Everybody say with supplication. Well, prayer gives us this idea. It paints this picture of communing with God. Having this effective conversation. Now, some of you are conversationalists of the type that it is decidedly one way no matter who you're talking to. I think probably you stay at home and stare in the mirror and practice all day because this is how conversations with you go. And so it'll be something like this. I walk up and I say, I say, I'm just, I don't want to offend anybody. And so I say, hello, offering plate. How are you? And offering plate just begins, oh, I'm just so good. I'm so blessed. Life's so good. You know what I mean? And I go to be like, yeah, I kind of know. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, let me tell you about my day. And, and 30 minutes later, all I asked the whole time was, how are you? I'm regretting it. But for some of us, that is the way our prayers go with God. And you've seen these people. You've seen these people, maybe some of you are, where all conversations, it's all about you. It's all about pouring out who you are, the fascinating things going on in your life, and you're receiving nothing from the other person. It is one-way transactional. It's not, it's not going both ways. Prayer with the Almighty. Recognize that in most conversations, the wisest one likely has the most to say. But it is the fool who pours out in speech. In our prayers, we would be wise to wait and listen to what God would say in light of our communing with him. Amen? This, this idea of conversing with God is somewhat foreign. To speak to somebody either in your head or out loud and to expect verbal utterance for him that will likely not occur. But it is something that the Christian must develop, whether it be praying the words of Scripture, God, cause me to be these things. God, how would you have me move? God, how would you lead me? God, where would you take me? God, if Scripture says that we are to be salt and light, I pray that I would be salt and light. And then waiting on him to tell you how you might grow in light, grow in saltiness, and diminish in darkness and salt that has lost its savor. This is what prayer is. But many of us are buttressed and supported by what he says next, with all prayer and supplication. This idea that we are absolutely to ask things of God. You, you, it's, it's this amazing thing that you have the creator of the universe that you're able to converse with. You're able to converse with. This, this is just unbelievable. You have untold power and ability in him, and you're able to talk, to talk to him about your life, make requests of him in your life. By all means, we should be going to him and saying, God, would you cause these things to be realities in my life? Not selfish things. When I was uh, 16, I desperately wanted my parents to buy me a new car. Not the car that they wanted me uh, to have, but the type of car that when I drove on the parking lot at school, everybody would say, who is that? And, and all the ladies would say, I got to date him. And all the fellows would say, I got to be his friend. That's just, that's what I wanted. I didn't get it. Instead, I got a car that wouldn't go through the intersection without stopping. 
And so every time I'd pull up to a four-way stop, it would flood out, and I would have to go knock, hey, can you help me push this? Can you help me? And so I made a lot of friends, but not in that way. And, and, and coincidentally, no ladies wanted to date me, uh, likely because they knew my car could make it through a four-way intersection. But these supplications, these requests are so much more important than praying for the trivial things in our lives. We should spend far more time praying for God's character refinement than in our lives than our financial compensation and blessing. Probably the most prominent thing that the prosperity gospel evinces and, and, and displays is that we should be asking God to make us wealthy. We should be asking God to make us well bring financial blessings to me in my life. Now certainly in scripture we do see a case where many of the, the patriarchs in the Old Testament, Abraham and others, were financially well off. I mean, these guys were loaded. But what we don't see is them turning and praying for God to make them well off. In fact, in the New Testament, if Jesus is the model for the Christian to follow, Jesus had no place to lay his head. This gives us an indication of those types of things we should be praying for and those types of things that we should ask God. God, if you would bless me, pray you would make me wise. Help me to be a wise steward of those things you entrust me to. He says, pray with all prayer and supplication. Look at the next clause. He said, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. To that end, because we are called to pray in the Spirit at all times, because we are called to utter prayer and supplication, he comes back and he says, you need to be alert. You need to be alert. You need to persevere. This idea of being alert means taking in any and every opportunity to pray. Don't be slovenly in this. Don't be lazy in this. Look for opportunities to pray. Look for things to pray for. Look for things to pray about. Look for people to pray with. Keep alert. Like, and, and so the verb, the idea that he's putting in here is the type of thing of, of putting your back and your energy into an effort. Putting your back and energy into an effort. And so if many of us think that the most difficult thing we do is our primary occupation, be it at home or in the workplace, or if you're a retired person, it's just, you know, I don't know, watching the golf channel or whatever, whatever it is you do. And so whatever you're expending energy in, Paul writes and he says, the same degree that you put energy in that, you should be giving energy to being alert, being attentive for things to pray for, things to bathe, ways to intercede in prayer on behalf of others. And so he describes it and he says, with all perseverance. Not just a little bit of perseverance, but with, with all perseverance. There is always this temptation to grow lazy in prayer. Like if you've never fallen asleep praying, one of two things is true. Either you've probably not prayed long enough or you're much holier than I. Maybe both of those things are true. It's difficult. It is a, a, something to be developed. It's not something that you come to faith and instantly God just transform your knees into these perfect, mushable things that can endure hour upon hour of being on them in prayer. And you can talk at end and hear him respond to you at end with little or no effort. It requires a tremendous amount of effort, energy expended in this. We're calling yourself to be alert, to be attentive, and to persevere in the midst of it. 
recognize that his call towards perseverance gives us the indication that this is something that's difficult to do. It's difficult. Like, I don't know where along the line we came to the understanding that Christianity was this easy exercise of, we go to church on Sunday, we show up occasionally on Wednesday, and, you know, and we give some, some moderate amount to the church, likely for tax benefits. Like, this, this idea that Christianity is meant to be easy is antithetical to the gospel. Jesus Christ gave his life to establish the church. Do you think, really, that he would go to that depth to usher in something that was easy to do? He calls us to surrender. It's difficult. Prayer is one of these things that each week, I spend a considerable amount of my time each morning and throughout the day in prayer. And I find myself both uplifted and destroyed in prayer. I find myself both encouraged and bereft in prayer. I find myself coming near to God, Him showing weaknesses and faults in my life. And that's hard. It's hard. It's especially difficult on Sundays when I stand before you so woefully aware of those inadequacies that he's brought to my heart. And then I'm calling you and I'm calling myself and I'm calling us to full bore surrender. But I have it no other way. It's hard. It's encouraging. To go to God and, and, and to not have a plan, to not know how things are going to go, and to have Scripture pop into your mind. To have the Spirit speak to us through His Word, and, and to know that in the midst of anxiousness, He comes to us in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and says, be anxious for nothing. But in all things, what? Through prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and we will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Through prayer, we're able to overcome a tremendous difficulties by the power of the Spirit through the salvation afforded us in the Son. So he goes through this and he says, keep alert with all perseverance. Now the interesting thing to note is that he doesn't turn it on. He doesn't turn it back to us. He doesn't say that you need to be alert with all perseverance so you can be sure to ask God that full list of things that you have there before you drift off to sleep. No, look what he says. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for whom? For all the saints. Think in your mind. Who are, who, who are those that you consider to be the saints? For some of you, the list is short. It's your wife, it's your grandmother. But as we look at this list, as we look at this idea, we recognize that when Paul penned the letter to the Ephesians, he wrote back in verse 1 that this letter is addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, although you are likely living as a sinner, fallen and struggling, when God looks at you, he sees a saint sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul comes to us and he says that we are to make supplication for all the saints, we are to make supplication, we are to request things of God, make entreaties to God on behalf of each and every brother and sister in Christ. Paul is making a case for intercessory prayer. Paul is making a case for intercessory prayer, praying on behalf of other people things for them. Not, God, let me have a pool so I can invite my neighborhood over to swim in it and cool off in the heat of summer. 
Like, this is not an intercessory prayer. It's my prayer, but it's not an intercessory prayer. Some of you haven't been outside enough this summer. You don't really see the value in that prayer. Others of you have pools and have not invited me over, and so it's the imprecatory psalms for you. For those of you who don't know what imprecatory psalms are, that's God bring down wrath on their heads. Now you're picking up on it. All right, where was I? Make supplication for all the saints. What a, what a tremendous thing to be able to pray for other people. To be able to, to, to pray for them, and, and you don't have to text them at the end of it and be like, man, praying for you, or Facebook, you know, praying for so-and-so today. Like, you can do that, and that's tremendous. And I've received a number of those from, from some of you this morning, and I certainly appreciate that. But we can pray for them, and our prayer is able to affect change whether they know we're praying for them or not. Isn't that a tremendous blessing? That in the midst of, of you really struggling with somebody, maybe somebody in this room doesn't like you, maybe you don't like someone in this room, that God still calls you to offer supplications for them. You think we serve a God who is a reconciler? Recognize that God reconciled us all to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ and his cross, and he is calling us to be reconciled one to another. And one of the ways he does this is by calling on upon us to pray for those we disagree with. For those who disagree with us, who malign us, for those who despise us and our families and our very existence and ability to draw breath, he would come to you and say, pray for them. Not pray that they would change, but pray that God would change your heart. Pray that God's blessings will be known in their life and he would affect heart change in them. Don't pray for them to be how you would have them, but pray for them to be how God would have them. Do you understand the difference there? Many of us have set ourselves up to be God full of all wisdom when we say, God, make my spouse this way or make my spouse more agreeable that way. Make her more outgoing. Make her more amenable to moving. Make her more amenable to this. Make her a better cook. Dear God, or just help her not to cook so much. We need to be praying for each other. One of the ways we have to do this, or the, one of the ways that we do this is, is We've got to be willing to open up to our other brothers and sisters in Christ. If we have men in here that are struggling with pornography or women that are struggling with that, if we have families whose home lives are ruined and terrible, we've got to be a safe place. We've got to be a place where, where I can go to Jay and say, Jay, this is what I'm struggling with, and he can pray for it, and, and I know that it's not going to make the circuit, so it's not going to end up somewhere. It's got to be a safe place where when people come to you and say, this is something real I'm struggling with. Would you walk with me in this? Would you pray for me in this? Your first thought isn't to judge them. It's like, I don't want you near me. I don't want you near my children. I can't wait to go talk to so-and-so about this. We are a community of people struggling to live up to an ideal, and that ideal is Jesus. And it's only by the grace of God that we're able to withstand in the midst of that. And one of the ways that we're able to stand is by lifting up one another in prayer. Can I tell you, we have got to be honest with one another. The brave faces so many of us strap on Sunday after Sunday will not cut it. We need to be a people willing and ready to lay it all out. We need to be a people willing and willing, ready and willing to take up the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters in Christ and intercede for them preemptively if need be. This is a hard thing we're called to do.
Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there are 15 opinions. That's not how the passage goes. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them in their midst. We need to pray that the peace of God would change our hearts and our minds and they would be firmly secure in Jesus Christ. And we need to pray that our brothers and sisters in Christ would join us in that endeavor. That they would feel open, that they would feel secure to do that in this place with us. This people, not a different people. We need to make supplication for all the saints. If there were ever any of us in this room tempted to say, I don't need that, Paul defeats it. Paul says, make supplication for all the saints. And we say, okay, we recognize there are needy people out there. And then Paul says, and also for me. Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament, recognizes the necessity of intercessory prayer in his life. And so he asks them, don't just pray for everyone generally, but also pray for me. Pray for me. This should give us tremendous encouragement That's not weakness in asking people to pray for us. It is boldness, strength, and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. To which we can go to our other brothers and sisters in Christ and say, would you pray for me in this regard? He says, pray for me. Now look at the specific nature of his prayer. He says that words may be given me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul's prayer isn't that he gets out of prison. Recognize Ephesians is written in either Paul's first or second imprisonment. He's not praying and saying, pray that life be better for me, that I get out of jail, that I get to go see my mom and dad. Like, pray that these things work out for me. Instead, his prayer centers on his bold delivery of the gospel. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts 26. And I encourage you to read it this afternoon. Paul was arrested and he set his sights on communicating the gospel all the way up to Caesar. And as you read through uh, the book of Acts, once you find Paul in custody, he goes to this guy, he goes to that guy, and he's presenting a case and cause for the gospel up and up and up the ladder. And so he's laying out the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, so to speak, in Acts 26. And Paul's laying out why he's doing these things. In verse 24, and it says, And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Look how Paul responds. I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner King Agrippa do you do you believe the prophets I know that you believe and Agrippa said to Paul in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian and Paul said whether short or long I would to God that not only you but that all those who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains enchained Before a higher power, Paul gives bold testimony of the gospel. And in the midst of this, Paul still prays for more boldness. What a great prayer. That God would embolden our hearts, that he would cause us to be wise with our words, that in the opening of our mouth is the opening of Paul's boldness of the gospel would pour out, not braggadocious pride. Not that we would make much of ourselves 
and our ability to wax eloquent, but that we would make much of the gospel. Jesus Christ, him crucified. Jesus Christ, him drawing men and women from darkness to light, from death to life. Paul characterizes his own disposition. He characterizes his own state and says, I am an ambassador in chains. Paul saw himself as an envoy. He saw himself as someone sent by Jesus to communicate the gospel, and he saw his his chains, his imprisonment, not as something that impeded his ability to communicate the gospel, but as a reality of his choosing to suffer for it. Paul did not shun the possible defeats. He did not shun all, all the, the difficulties that would come to him because of his belief in the gospel. In fact, you read there at the end of chapter 26 in Acts, it says, And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. It was not Paul's ability to get off free. It was, Paul's, it was not Paul's desire to get off free. It was Paul's desire to communicate boldly. And so he asks that the believers there in Ephesus might pray towards this. And look at how he characterizes it. He says, That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. If Christians, if we're going to speak the gospel, we need to do so boldly. Standing in the midst of those who oppose us in doing so boldly, with no equivocation, no backing down, but we need to do so as Paul did, graciously. Do you hear the entreaty and the graciousness in his, in his voice? Not that just you would believe, but that all those who hear me would believe, and they would be as I, except for these chains. Friends, that's not judgment. That's not judgment, that's not hate speech, that is the most loving thing we can do. If we believe that apart from Jesus Christ that you are confined to live a life set apart from God in hell, paying for the consequences of your sins, then to do anything else other than to be bold with the gospel is to be preeminently unloving. So Paul asked that he would pray boldly. Look at how Paul closes the letter to the Ephesians. Let's look at verse 24. Paul writes verse 24, and he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Paul recognizes that in Ephesians 1.13, it says, you, believe, you heard, you believed, and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If God has done a work of regeneration and healing in your life, if he has called you from darkness to life, if you were dead in Ephesians 2.1 and made alive in Ephesians 2.4 and following, because you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Not your ability to be good, but God's ability to demonstrate his love and kindness towards you in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If that is you, then you love Christ with a love incorruptible. Because it's a love that was first visited upon you from Jesus, and his spirit abiding in you gives you the ability to love him in return. But I want you to observe something. In the midst of all, of all of the direction of all of the ways Paul sought to encourage these Ephesians by extending to them this letter, the last thing he addresses them on is the subject of grace. Unmerited favor. And when we look back at Ephesians 1-2, we recognize that the message which began in grace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
here in chapter 6 and verse 24 ends with grace. Oh, that God would make us a people quick to extend grace to those who rebel against our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that God would make us a people ready to receive his love and grace and forgiveness. Would you join me in prayer? God, you are most kind. You are most loving. And I thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Father, I pray you forgive us for those moments that we seek to, to live life on our own, that we seek to do it on our own. Father, help us to live lives wholly surrendered to you. Help us to be a people who are fervent in prayer. A people on alert, looking for others to pray for, looking for things in ourselves to pray about. Looking to you to inspire our prayers, your spirit to strengthen them, for us to pray in accordance with your spirit. God, I thank you for your goodness to us, your grace. Help us to be gracious. Help us to be bold. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.